Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I had, if you ever was a devil, bought that any harness, Well, you know, there comes a point in all our lives when we come face to face with our own mortality. Not just the concept that death exists, but that you will actually die someday yourself. And it doesn't matter how mentally prepared you think you are for that moment or like how much you've told yourself rationally that you are a living thing that will die someday. When the moment actually comes, it shifts your perspective in some interesting ways. Today is the 4th of January, 2023. Happy New Year, everyone. And uh, I had my own shift in perspective just a few days ago on the 29th of December. Um, I was just living my life like I always do. And at about 7.30 in the evening, out of nowhere, I felt this incredible band of weird tingling pressure that was almost like pain, but not quite pain. Uh, and it tightened around my chest, and then I had a very definite pain <laughs> shoot down my left arm and up the side of my neck. And I had Paul drive me to the ER, which fortunately is just a few blocks away from our house, so we got there quickly. And in that ER, the very young doctor leaned towards me and looked me soberly in the eye and said, I think it's very likely that you've had a heart attack. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. We've remarked on Jean's poise and self-confidence, but not so long ago, Jean felt lethargic and awkward. And feeling awkward, well, let's see what happens. Well, long story short, fortunately, I did not have a heart attack. <laughs> the ER took great care of me, and uh, several blood tests later, they felt entirely satisfied that I had not had a myocardial infarction after all, thank goodness. And I was sent home with uh, an admonishment to follow up with a regular doctor as soon as possible so I could get, you know, referred to a cardiologist and all that stuff, because what I probably experienced was something called angina. It's an indication of coronary artery disease, which does in fact put you at higher risk for real actual heart attacks. This is not a surprise to me. I've known my entire life that my dad's side of the family is just packed full of heart disease. It's all over the place in my DNA. I've got hypertension myself, which I'm on medication for. I take it very seriously. I work very hard to control it. So I've always been aware that when it comes to my heart and maybe my longevity, uh, as the old magic eight ball would say, outlook not so good. Physical activity can provide excellent release for nervous tensions. Exercise increases the rates of respiration and circulation and serves as a stimulus as well as a release for nervous tension. The pleasing tiredness that follows exercise promotes complete relaxation. So this wasn't a serious emergency this time, and happily this experience has given me a way to understand my own health better and to monitor it more closely. 
and hopefully, if luck is on my side, to avoid real disaster and enjoy a long, happy life. I feel fortunate, in a weird way, that I have the chance to hopefully get further out ahead of this and take more effective steps to keep my heart in better health so I can spend as much time as possible in the trusty old meat suit. But it is a meat suit, like, and it's getting old. <laughs> That's a startling thing to realize, you know, that my body is starting to malfunction. Or at least it's not working as optimally as it once did. And even though logically, I know that's just the way life goes, you know, we all get old, we all start to degrade in some ways, the seasons turn, yada yada. It's still a big moment in your life when you run into that fact head on, and you can't deny it or hand wave it away. I didn't freak out though through any part of this. I was very calm while it was all going on, very accepting. The most difficult part for me really was when I had to tell Paul that I needed to stay in the ER for several more hours because they thought I'd had a heart attack. Paul is a very anxious person by nature. I felt guilty saying all this to him because I don't want to be a burden to him. He'd gone out to wait in the car since I was clearly stable and had to go into the back for testing anyway. And the doctor said I could go out and talk to him for a few minutes and let him know what was going on and that I was going to uh, need several more tests. It was going to take hours longer to complete. So I texted him and he drove around the little hospital drive to pick me up. And when he pulled up, there were two people, two other patients who were not having the best day of their lives. I think both of them were really struggling with mental health and maybe addiction and maybe they were living on the street, I don't know. But they were both in rough shape and they were getting into this very loud and very animated fight right outside our car and security came over to try to break it up. And in the midst of this absolute chaos, I had to look at my husband and say, they think I had a heart attack. It was a wild ride that night. But I'm doing okay now. Actually, I felt great ever since then. And Paul has been okay. He dealt with it like a champ. I really love him. Every single day since we first got together, I've thought about how lucky I am to have Paul for a partner. I've really been a very lonely person for most of my life. I've always felt distinctly unloved and invisible and pained by how little I seem to mean to everyone. <laughs> when everyone and everything means so goddamn much to me. But Paul really makes me feel loved. And even before I got the all clear when I thought maybe I had had a heart attack after all and maybe this meant something really dire and immediate for me, I just felt so much gratitude and joy over the fact that for all the longings I still have and all the things I still want to achieve, I am content. There are a lot of things that make me furious about my career and a lot of things that break my heart, but I have built a career as a writer. I get to do the thing I love and the thing I'm best at for a living. And I've also found someone who actually cares about me and chooses to spend his life as my partner. Like, against all the odds, I managed to find a person, maybe the only person on the whole planet, who wants to be my companion. And even though this experience was sobering, yes, and startling, I mean, it's always going to be a shocker when you run face first into the brick wall of your mortality, but mostly I came out of this experience feeling really, really lucky and really, really in love with my life. 
I know sometimes it probably seems to some other people that I take my life for granted, my career, the opportunities I've had, few though those opportunities have been. I know some people find my ambition and my continual striving for more as a writer uh, upsetting. Because they think I'm not aware somehow of what I have. They think I'm not grateful enough for it. I don't know. I mean, I have a lot to say to the individuals out there who think they know me and think they understand my history, my motives, my reasons for striving for the things I strive for. Mostly I have nothing good to say to those folks. <laughs> but when I was faced with that moment of truth, when a doctor who was young enough to be my child looked me in the eye and said, I think you're having a heart attack, I felt nothing but peace because I knew that even if I was about to die, I had achieved the two things that have always meant the most to me. I may be a nobody who no one has ever heard of, and maybe I'll always be a nobody, but nobody that I am, I still got to the point where I could write books for a living, and most people who dream that dream never get that far. And I found someone who loves me. So I knew then that I could die happily, like if I had to go that night or any night after. And I know how rare it is to reach the end of a life, however long or short that life may be, and say, I did it. I did everything I wanted to do, more or less, technically. Mission accomplished. I'm going out with a smile. I have to read you something because I was I was waiting for you to log on. I texted my sister and said that I was going to interview you for my podcast and she was very excited. <laughs> she said, well, tell her I say hi. She is like my spirit guide, kind of. Maybe don't tell her that part. Wait, tell her I'm a huge fan of her work and her creativity because it's so fluid and emotive. That's what I want to embody. So that's a message from my sister, Georgia. <laughs> Oh man, hi Georgia. That's so awesome to hear. You you all like it's so funny because my sister and I are really close and she's a writer. Oh, no way. Yeah, and we're like, I mean, she is my best best friend. So every time that I see like any messages from both of you, honestly, I'm like, oh, it's like another power sister couple. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I'm talking to Mia Bergeron. She's an artist, a painter who primarily works in oils in a style which I think is technically called contemporary realism, but which I find to be somewhere in the Venn diagram overlap between realism and surrealism. As some of my listeners already know, I'm an avid art collector, one of the minor goals I would still like to accomplish with my life, provided I can manage to keep my ticker working long enough to do it, is to found a museum of late 20th and early 21st century art. Art that's being made right at this transition point between the old era and the new. The basis of most art museums is, in fact, the personal collection of some eccentric art enthusiast or other, and over the years, often after the collector's death, those collections morph into public museums where many people can access the collected works. If I ever achieve this goal, Mia Bergeron's work will no doubt be central to the museum that will live on after I'm gone. She's by far one of my favorite contemporary artists. In fact, I think she's doing some of the most expressive and relevant work in the contemporary Western art tradition. Her work combines intimate portraiture with shifting and mysterious realities. Her visual world is one of saturated color and luminous things shining out of darkness, 
Deer with lit candles dripping wax down their antlers, swimming pools seen by night and watched over by monks whose pensive heads dissolve into the rising air, coyotes singing to the small green bodies of spirits that float above their heads. Mia's work says something about the here and now, but it's not the external world through which we're obliged to move as modern-day humans. It's the internal world, the internal landscape, and I really enjoyed talking with her about her history as an artist, her process, and her thoughts. I love my sister so much. Like, that has always been the most important relationship in my life. I love her. I'm so excited that she is exploring art now and, like, finding her voice as an artist because she's always been really creative and just, you know, for one reason or another, mainly raising kids, that takes a lot out of you. <laughs> she yeah, just never really explored it until um, until her 40s. And now she's just, like, going nuts on it. And I love watching her creativity unfold. I know. It feels like, I mean, I, I obviously don't know her as long as you, but, like, watching her her post more and just kind of seeing like more of her images come out and her paintings and her illustrations. And it's really neat to kind of, I don't know, I always get the vibe that like you guys are kind of similar to my sister and I a bit. Like you, you can tell the love. <laughs> so, so who's the older one? Is it you or her that's the eldest? She's, she's two years older. Yeah. How about with you and your sister? My sister is five years younger. Oh, okay. So wow. So a, a writer and a painter in another family were your parents also very creative or like how how does that whole dynamic work with your family? Both of my parents were graphic designers growing up. Oh, okay. Yeah, both visual, both. And my mom's side comes from like a long lineage of painters. So I'm not dissimilar to you, Libby. Like there's a lot of overlaps there. My sister being the writer, like she sort of veered off a little bit like my most of my family's really visual yeah mine too yeah <laughs> okay so did you have this thing that happened in your family if you had chosen to be like a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer your family would have like given you one weird eyebrow and been like what <laughs> yeah, i think so i think so <laughs> I, one of the things I talk about a lot, like when I go to writing conferences and stuff and speak there, um, I, I end up frequently discussing how I think it was a real benefit to me in developing my career to come from a family of like professional creatives. I hate the term creative as like, it's like a blanket thing, but professionals who work in some kind of art field, um, because no one ever told me that it was a bad idea to do that as a career. So it sounds like that was the same with you and your sister as well, where like, it was always just like, yeah, you want to be an artist? You want to be a writer? Good, go do it. <laughs> No? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was always at the like, you know, there are some things <laughs> my sister and I joke about that really basic stuff that I think kind of got passed over because my parents were so creative. And I'm grateful for it now. But as like a kid, I remember being like, yeah, can you have like a consistent income? You know, <laughs> that, <laughs> that was just not part of our family dynamic. It was like, you know, up, down, up, yep. down. It just it that never felt abnormal to me. Like, and also I never questioned being self-employed really, which was interesting because my, especially my dad has been self-employed most of my life. And my mom, as a kid, she was, you know, obviously they owned a business together. And then later when they were divorced, she kind of ended up, you know, working for a company later. But it was just interesting. Like that wasn't, self-employment wasn't something that was so scary. Like as an adult, it became a lot scarier. <laughs> But it was just sort of, it was the norm, you know? It's like almost, it, it's funny now to kind of notice like, oh, they really weren't the majority at all. Yeah, and I, you and I are pretty close to the same age. So yeah, our parents would have been roughly 
within the same generation. And yeah, it was it was not that common to be self-employed back then in most sectors. And and yeah, it definitely gave it gave us a different vibe growing up too, where, you know, sometimes we had enough money to do things that all the other kids were doing. And sometimes it was just not in the cards. <laughs> like, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, we went from like major extremes, you know, like they did really well because it was like the 80s in New York City, you know, so like my folks did really, really well during that time. And so they would, you know, have these sort of over the top decadent vacations and stuff. And then like, you know, they they lost their business um, in the early 90s. And yeah, it was rough. And seeing the other side of that at the same time, you know, within five years of going from like a really, I mean, I'd say upper class education and upbringing, and then really kind of not <laughs> like moving to Georgia, going to public school for the first time in my life, like just a lot of different things that kind of came out of that. It was it actually, I don't know if you feel this, but those ups and downs, those, those highs and the valleys, they kind of prepared me in some respects for, you know, like you said, like quote unquote, like the creative lifestyle, but it's, it's true. It's really hard to kind of explain that. And you, it's weird. I don't know if you have this, but like, I get a lot of younger people people maybe in like high school who are going to be looking at colleges who are deciding like you know should I be an artist is this something you know and you see their parents kind of like please tell them no you know and I used to be like of course you can and and it's made me stop a little bit to think like you know this is not for everybody these professions are so competitive and they are so requiring of so many parts of a person i would never have thought like oh yeah it's just like it's creative and you you know i make art all day i'm like <laughs> i wish that was the case that's totally not you know <laughs> What do you think about that? I totally agree. There's so much more to it than that. And for sure, whenever I talk to especially young people, but also like I, I run into a lot of people who are, you know, considering making a career change and looking at like, can I become an author? Like, can I do that? And I always tell them like, yeah, there's no reason why you can't, but you do need to be prepared for like what it's like to get there. Because, you know, I, I've seen it. I've seen the visual art side of it too. You know, early on, you're doing so much work and like this soul ringing work that just drains you for no pay. And, and for no, like, no hint that you might ever be paid for it. It's totally like wing in a prayer. Like, I got to put this out there and hope that something comes of it. So you just put everything into your early work and you are not getting compensated for it. And you have to expect that. And then you build it up very slowly with these tiny little steps. And eventually it starts to snowball, but it takes a while, <laughs> you know, like. It does. It took like 10 years after I really started taking my writing seriously before I was earning any decent money from it. And it was still like compared to what I'm earning now, you know, another 10 years on or almost 10 years on, um, it was sad, the money I was making back then. But at the time I was like, yay, it's finally paying me. You know? <laughs> oh my, I'm like, I can actually keep doing this because it's paying for the supplies finally, you know, like that kind of thing. Like I'm breaking even, hooray. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> and I also tell people, this is not the kind of career that is right for someone who doesn't have a high level of comfort with risk. 
Like that is kind of the main thing that I think you need personality-wise in order to establish a successful career in the arts. You have to be okay with not knowing how much money you're gonna make from year to year. Oh man. You have to be like, okay, well, we'll just see what happens. Like last year, my income dropped by $150,000. Most people I know would shit their pants over that. And I was like, I was like, whatever, write your life. I'll just write another bestseller, who cares? <laughs> It's so funny though, right? It's such a great life lesson for that because you're like, I don't know if you feel this because I've had that too where I've been like, you know, maybe not like, (laughs) I don't think I've ever been making that, but like, you know, watching, you know, wow, my income like this year went, some big project happened and, you know, we were able to like fix a part of our house or go on a trip or, you know, whatever. And then the next year we have zero savings and we can't pay our taxes. And, you know, there's all of that stuff. It's interesting to kind of, I don't know, I've just been kind of noticing like there is this, like you said, you have to be comfortable with risk. And it's funny how my grandparents' generation, definitely my parents' generation, there was a possibility of having a job that you didn't really have to factor that in. But more and more, I talk to people who have like a quote unquote nine to five job and there's, it's a different type of risk. And I don't think it's quite as extreme, but um, they still feel it. I mean, it's still, it's still there, but I've, I've been kind of noticing like, you know, wow, this is a skill set like you. I've been working on for almost 20 years and some of that is just the risk risk management for lack of a better term you know and kind of noticing like oh this has kind of prepped me in other parts of my life like outside of the art that I make and the, the art business but you start to notice like things come up inevitably in life like you know a wave will crash and I don't know there's like a flexibility there that I'm now in my 40s becoming grateful that I've had to have a lot of experience with risk for these 20 something years now, you know? I agree. I I think that involvement in the arts and that art career has made me uh, better able to roll with some of the general punches of life than I think maybe other people would have. Because, you know, you just, in order to survive in this career, you just have to develop that attitude of like, okay, well, well, here's the situation now. How do we navigate this? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, this podcast is mostly, on the surface, about storytelling and about how story affects the world around us. And I really wanted to talk to you because, of course, as you know, um, I have several of your paintings in my collection, in my personal collection, and um, I just really, really love the way you communicate ideas visually. Thank you. You're welcome. It's such a different medium from how I communicate ideas with words. I mean, I think words are more direct and maybe more, this is going to sound really on the nose, but more literal, you know, you can, (laughs) you can, Sure. it's easier for that part of the brain that receives information to receive an idea if it's conveyed in words instead of visually or musically or in the medium of dance or, you know, whatever other creative medium we're talking about. I don't know. I wanted to know because there, there is, there is such narrative in your work. Like there are messages that your work is clearly trying to send. I was just talking to another guest earlier today about this, and we were discussing where the boundary lies between art and not art, which is always like a fraught topic to ask any artist about, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No one wants to admit their real thoughts on this topic. Maybe for good reason. <laughs> But we were talking about that and I was saying, you know, I really feel like where the difference lies is in the ability of a piece of work to to 
carry an idea. Like, even if it's not really successful in communicating the idea the way its creator intended, you still get the vibe from some stuff that it holds an idea, and that the artist is trying to, like, push this idea into the gray matter of whoever looks at it, or listens to it, or receives it in whatever way. Your art is just packed with ideas. Thanks. I was wondering if you could, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Like, tell me about why, why do ideas come to you and come out of you visually instead of in any other way? Man, oh man, here we go. We're opening the Pandora's box, right? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm going to say it on here. Like, thank you for being so supportive of me in all the ways. Um, thank you for that, truly. It's purely selfish. I love to look at the stuff you make. <laughs> thank <so>. you. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny, like, I think, again, to go back to our sisters, but, um, and that dynamic, it's interesting because my sister and I talk a lot about this of like how we both have to deal with time differently in our work and both have advantages and disadvantages. Like I am telling a story, but it, it is all in one moment, whereas you and her are telling stories that somebody that are kind of untangled in a way that you're dealing with time right? So you have to keep people reading. You have to think about the pacing. You, um, you have to keep the attention. Um, everything is like, time is, you are on a totally different timeline than I am as a writer. And as a painter, even, it's really just, I'd say, painters, sculptors, and photographers. And when I say painters, I, I, I mean that too as like illustrators and, um, right. you know, yeah, I, collage artists. Yeah, everybody, yeah, everybody in there that's like a, like a one shot, right? Um, not film. Like film is somewhere in between both of us, I think. But it's interesting because it's like with that, my storyline has to come kind of before. And then what you see is the landscape that has sort of um, been created to sort of hold that story. So a lot of times, like when I am working on something, I, okay, I'm, <laughs> this is such a lame thing, but I know you're gonna get it. So have you ever seen that movie Inception? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so here we go of like <clears throat> using a really, you know, let's do a Leonardo DiCaprio movie. But anyway, so um, one of the things in it that I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I could put this on my artist bio. <laughs> But people would be like, you're literally quoting Inception, <laughs> is um, they said, you know, they make the kind of the landscape and then the dreamer puts their subconscious into it. And I loved that because I thought, wow, like I am kind of creating this sort of vessel or however you want to say it. And then people, hopefully, if I don't fill it with too much narrative, people have space to fill it with their own. Um, so you'll never, at least for now, I haven't, the, the narratives that I'm the most drawn to in my work and the storytelling tend to have big holes in them um, because I don't necessarily want, honestly, too much of a storyline, um, but I do want you to feel the framework of some space where you can enter. So um, they'll be like, a lot of them have a question that's kind of involved or something that you wouldn't. For me, a question visually is typically when you see some two things that don't make sense together. Um, you, it's like, I remember seeing this thing one time. It was so interesting. It was like, if you put three dots, people know that it's a triangle. You don't have to draw the lines between the dots for people to know that. And I was thinking, gosh, that is so much like painting because at least the way I think about it is that 
you know, if I put these different elements in, but I don't give you necessarily a direct reason, you're going to put the dots together in some form that is your own. And yet I've like set up those dots for you. Um, so it becomes kind of, I don't, I wouldn't say it's a conversation because I don't often get to have that with the person who has looked or bought my, at my work or bought my work. Um, just because of the, the logistics of being a professional artist working through galleries. But that is kind of my goal with storytelling. So I'll have those dots for me are typically something um, kind of, I think, I, I think we're similar in this way too, of like, they often reach back to nostalgia um, in my own life, which I have found like my own nostalgia if I'm thinking it like a bunch of other people are thinking it, that's the great thing about being human, right? <laughs> you're like, I'm not so special. <laughs> so, you know, it can like, my thing is going to touch somebody else in some totally different way. So I don't really worry about like, hey, is my story original enough? That That's really no longer a thing for me. Um, it's more like, does this kind of dig into the place that if it's fairly true for me, like if all the if all the bells are going off, right, then typically I find that some bells will go off for other people if I kind of follow that one for myself. That's a really abstracted way to say that, to answer that question. <laughs> That's okay, though, because actually, like, it makes a lot of sense to me being a fan of your work. Like, yeah, this is exactly the way Mia Bergeron would answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go around. <laughs> oh. I'm actually really glad you brought up Inception and the concept of dreams because your work does feel very dreamlike to me. Like, it feels like I'm stepping into the memory of a dream I had, which I love. Mm -hmm. I love that feeling. Like, it, there, there are few artists who can evoke that in me, and you're one of them, so good job. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Dreams, I've always had really, I don't know if you have this, like, my, so my husband, John, who is also an artist, um... And a fantastic artist. I also have a lot of his pieces in my collection. <laughs> I know you like have helped us out so much. Um, and, you know, so he has these epic dreams. Like he will, we'll wake up in the morning and it's the like, what did you dream about last night? You know, he will have these epic, huge dreams where there's like thousands of people and they're coming from all points of the earth. And it's like really dramatic. I mean, he has just these apocalyptic, enormous dreams and like, so that's a that's this is like a typical morning. He will tell me about that. There's like some big storyline going on. And then my dream, I'm like, yeah, it was really weird. It was like this woman sitting in a white room and she was like taking one of her dark hairs and sewing a book. You know? <laughs> and that's my dream. And I have a lot of those that are just like really don't make any sense, but they're a lot of times they're really, really visual. Like there's something strange going on. Like I've had dreams in black and white and it's I guess that comes out. I guess it's what I think about because it's obviously making its way into into my dreams. What, how do you, do you have any like thing that you think of as like, hey, I kind of dream this way, I guess, a little bit? Well, um, I did used to have a lot of really visual and um, dreams that were just like full of meaning that I would just take days and days of like journaling and dissecting and trying to get to the bottom of what they meant. Um, and I miss that. But the truth is, uh, when you use marijuana as much as I do, <laughs> it does kind of shut off the dreaming mechanism in your brain. And I miss that. And I, I try to take as long of breaks as I can get away with because I want my dreams to come back. I, I think dreams are very valuable, a critically important way of like tapping into your subconscious and maybe into the collective consciousness too. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but also 
conversely, I genuinely get so much direct uh, and important value out of using weed. And I know, like, <laughs> some people are going to be rolling their eyes at this, but, like, don't knock it till you try it. Like, I literally, I will get stuck on something in a book and I'll go out and walk around the neighborhood and get high and just, like, something cracks open and just the ideas start downloading into my head and I can't even, like, dictate dictate them into my phone fast enough to keep up with, like, how my thoughts are processing whatever <laughs> I was stuck on before. So I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, I have to get high in order to do my job, apparently. <laughs> or at least do my job optimally because, frankly, um, everything I was writing up until I started, like, I didn't, I didn't start using weed till like, my mid-30s. Mm -hmm. I had already established my writing career by then and it was going fine. It wasn't where I wanted it to be yet. It was going fine though. And then once I discovered weed, I became a best-selling author. <laughs> so, <laughs> You're like, so, so go smoke weed, kids. Right? <laughs> the results speak for themselves. Everyone do drugs. But <laughs> oh my god! Not like it really like significantly and directly benefits my creative process, and I can't fuck with that because my livelihood depends on it. So like, I go yeah. like three, four days at a time before I get to the point where I just hit too many roadblocks. I try to work them yeah. out without any herbal enhancements and I can't and I go spend 10 minutes with my weed and it is all fixed. <laughs> like, oh man, I'm so <laughs> I'm a little bit envious. I don't I don't live in a state that it's it's not legal where I live. <laughs> we got to we got to legalize it everywhere. It is not only like I'm going to go on my little weed tear here for a second. Not only is it important for creativity for many people and that enhances our experience of and our access to the arts for everyone, even if you don't use weed yourself. It makes more art. That's a good thing. It's also really, really important in treating anxiety and depression in a lot of people. So we yeah. need to please everyone out there. You don't have to use weed yourself. You don't have to like it. You are completely free to think I am an idiot and a loser for being stoned as often as I am. That's fair. <laughs> but like, please just vote to legalize it. You don't need to use it, but other people do. So please help us out. <laughs> All right. I mean, soapbox. <laughs> totally. I, I, I hear you. I, I don't smoke weed anymore, but it's, it's not, um, it's not like, Hey, I'm not opposed to it at all. It's just totally circumstantial, like how my life kind of the direction it went. Um, yeah, totally. and, and then also like, like I said, where I live, I'm like, <laughs> it's like, it's, there's all these places that are, that are opening up right now. Like I keep noticing them and they're doing the like, we sell CBD, uh -huh. we sell Delta eight, you know, they have like, they're like setting themselves up. And I'm like, they're just waiting for that one moment when it becomes legal and they're all going to be ready to go, you know, which I think is great. I mean, yeah. I'm all for it. I'm like, yeah, like you said, I mean, I think it's wonderful. And I've seen it do like truly miraculous things to some people I have known, like health wise, yeah. creative, creativity wise, like, sorry, but I think alcohol has like destroyed a lot more lives than weed has. <laughs> you know what I mean? I agree. And it's really bad for your body yeah. too. Agreed. So, <laughs> I don't even like being drunk. Like fortunately for me, cause you know, with this lovely addictive personality where I'm like, I need weed, <laughs> but I, I don't like being drunk. So it's not fun. I have alcohol, like, like an alcoholic drink, like maybe three times yeah, a year. I totally hear <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't drink a whole lot either. And it's like, also I'm 40, we're the same age. Like <laughs> we're in our early forties and I'm like, man, I just don't process stuff the same way anymore. <laughs> like it takes a long time to recover from a very small amount that wasn't actually that much fun. <laughs> just like not worth it. 
It's not. It's totally not. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier, because a couple days ago when I posted that reel on Instagram titled How the Sausage is Made, where I was lying on my couch, zooming in very slowly on your painting outlook, which hangs above my my fireplace. Um, I was high, full disclosure. I'm sure everyone got that from the context. I love to I love to look at all of the art in my collection, but I particularly love to look at your art when I'm in a contemplative mood or when I need to like change the way I think about something oh, because you. I find yeah, I, I find so much new stuff to notice and to ponder when I kind of enter into one of your pieces of art and especially that piece outlook I love so much. Um, you painted it in the early days of the pandemic like when we were still all in lockdown. Um, it's an incredible piece. It it's, has this vibrant color everywhere, and yet it has this weird, eerie, disorienting distortion of this like fisheye lens effect. And it's also split on two panels, but framed in the same frame. And it is just like so weird, so haunting, and so strange um, in all the ways I love. <laughs> it, it's it's this juxtaposition of all these animal skulls with all this beautiful, lush, sweet fruit piled around it and all this incredible color in the background. And one of the things I was noticing the other day when I was making the sausage, which is how I refer to getting, getting my ideas for my books, um, is that your, your grays, the, the color, like the saturation of your grays in that work and in, like, in every piece of work I've seen from you is so intense like you don't you don't do gray gray. All of your grays are colorful. Thanks. Um, does that? I feel like maybe that says something about the way you look at the world. Does it? Have you ever thought about that before, or is it just the way you paint? You know, it's probably a little bit of both. Like some of it's a little. Thank you. That's aw that's awesome. You noticed all that because you literally just hit like yes. This is like she just said my goal of when I'm painting of like check notice things way later like somebody who has bought a painting and they're like I've lived with this for two years and all of a sudden I noticed this this thing that's happened like I love that I like that in people I like that in art I like that when all of a sudden you like kind of something completely new is like under the surface there so <clears throat> so thank you check um <laughs> No. Um, and then that one, like that piece specifically is, is so much like, it's truly observational on multiple levels for me. Like it was observational of what was in front of me, you know? So I see a lot of color. I, it's something that I think I've almost gone overboard with because the way I was trained, um, I'm a classically trained portrait painter first. So studied in Italy, studied old master techniques and there's like zero color, right? Everything's like, we joke, we're like, it's the... It's the brown, like beige head coming out of a bag in front of a dark background. That's like, that's kind of, yeah. <laughs> that's my training, right? <laughs> and so when I left there, and you weren't allowed, and you weren't allowed much color in general. It was like five colors on a palette. And I did that for, you know, five years or something. And so mm -hmm. coming out of there, I was like, I'm ready to party, you know? <laughs> And so I have like, you know, neon on my, like neon paints on my, on my palette. And, um, but what I started noticing was that in studying, like some of the way that I have learned to look actually kind of follows a historical learning to look, which is really, or Western art, I guess. So like you have these like 
old masters that were, um, you know, the pigments available to them were earth tones, right? And then you kind of move on and you see the impressionists who were also at the time, different pigments were available. Um, you know, people mm -hmm. were starting to process larger quantities of paint and sell them. Like you get, you get different, different versions of that, but they were also in impressionism, they were noticing light right? And light is color. And so I think what happened for me is I, I did that sort of timeline in my own work. And once you see color, you just sort of can't turn it off. Um, you see things reflecting off of each other. And there's something about seeing all that color that can go very saccharine, you know, like not just sweet, but kind of that like, ugh, you know, when you walk into a place and it's too, it's too sweet and it's too happy. Um, I remember this artist, I think her, her name, I might get this wrong on here, but her name's Kyle Staver, I think. I read this article by her that was so fascinating where she was talking about keeping a painting taut, trying to keep it taut as far as like, it's not all happy and it's not all sad. So if you have all the gloom and doom and it's just like depressing to look at or read or whatever, like you are gonna kind of almost react to it um, the opposite like you're it's 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 all it's lopsided right and then you have everything that's too sweet it becomes like kind of icky and overly romanticized and overly sentimental and so keeping that little friction of tautness between the two consistently is like the sweet spot right visually especially and i kept thinking about just like this sort of sad time period that we're that we were in, you know, like you said, it was the beginning of the lockdown, and I kept looking at our house, like out. That's our. That's the view from our outside of our um, dining room window. I was just kind of thinking, like, wow, what a strange thing, because there's a part of me that's a little bit happy right now to not have to see people. <laughs> I mean, I work alone. I don't know what I was like, you know, so joyous about, but there was there was that thing of like, there's no, there's not like these commitments, and um, you know, as like somebody who really enjoys, I'm not gonna say like an introvert cause I don't know that I believe that stuff that much, but like as somebody who enjoys a lot of privacy, you know, there was, there was an, it was kind of built in all of a sudden and I was joying in that. So there was this happiness going on, but then, you know, it's the start of a pandemic. Like my sister lived in New York city at like basically, you know, right by Elmhurst hospital. And you think, Yikes. yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah. It was awful, you know? And so it was so contradictory for, for so many people. I think I, I heard a lot of people talking about the, just these two feelings. And I think it just kind of, whether I tried to or not, I think it came out in that piece of these like bright kind of, you know, pink and these sweet colors. And there's like this bright grass outside, everything's sort of like, you know, souped up color. And then, you know, I played with, like you said, the perspective and it's really warped. Like I wanted you to not feel like you maybe couldn't even put your feet down because you're so, you know, almost like feeling like you're on a ship. Like you just, you, you have your sea legs, you know, it's like, how do I get this to happen in a painting? And then all these skulls, like you said, like, I, I love painting skulls anyway, but um, that's just like, it's just fun. <laughs> you know, and I love people's reactions. Like, I, I think you have this too. Like you, do you own skulls? And I do. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Tons, like all over our house, right? And I love kind of watching from the corner when people enter our house for the first time because we have them all over the place. And it's like, we're like, we're either going to be pals or you are going to think we are nuts. <laughs> like we're either going true detective style or you were like, you know. <laughs> that is exactly like my home is so full of like high class goth shit. <laughs> totally.
Like, I love fine art. I'm a big art collector, but almost all of my art is, like, involves death in some way. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> People watching, and there's just, like, there's all these incredible, beautiful paintings of dead things all over. <laughs> Oh my god all over my house. you know what though libby god bless you because i'm always like i want to yeah. paint this skull but like you know there's there's always the things you know it's like there's certain things you're sometimes told like you know don't paint the skull don't paint the old man don't paint you know there's like there's sort of these like thing don't paint yellow i mean all of this bullshit right yeah. but it's so it's <laughs> i'm always like oh it's a little risky but let's do it anyway and like most of my favorite painters are right there with what you're talking about they're like yeah they're willing to go there but we have the same thing and it's it's really interesting to watch I remember having this show like um in my studio several years ago and this woman that I didn't know kind of walked in and she I had this big painting of a horse skull that was all in black and white it was really dark but then it had these tiny flicks of color under the skull it was it was pretty I wouldn't say it was like a totally special painting in some respects but it was a big painting and it was definitely like oh, okay, it's a statement, right? It was all about, it looked like a sculpture. Um, it was real sculptural anyway. And she was like, did you paint that? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, why? And I was like, well, why? <laughs> that's interesting. I kind of like this. All right, this chick's like, you know, she's getting down. She's asking. And so I was like, well, I thought it was, you know, a really beautiful, like, skull. And, you know, it's sculptural and the light was hitting in a certain way. And I just had her, you know, blah, blah. And um, she was like, but you're just, you're like, you know, this cute young woman because it was like 10 years ago <laughs> she's like you're this cute young woman and like why would you ever do that that doesn't even match your personality and I was like well let me tell you it kind of does but <laughs> and it was so funny because I was like wow she's having such a reaction to this and in a weird way I was so grateful for it you know it's like somebody having a reaction is better than not having a reaction is or a yeah, bad reaction right sure. it's like she was so kind of hell-bent on telling me like how disturbing the image was which I mean for those people I mean people who are listening to your podcast like I don't make that disturbing of images like you know at all like on that scale I'm not I'm nowhere down that line but it's so interesting because it said so much about her like I, I almost felt like I had just met her in a very different way which I was really grateful for it but it is interesting to see people's reactions of like that aversion to whether it's death or something dark or hard or whatever it is, and then and then not, <laughs> and then embracing it, you know? Uh, people do have an aversion to death, which is understandable, you know, natural, of course. No one wants to be dead. Like, we're alive. That's, that's the only thing we know. We want to do it. But, but I do, like, I come back to death constantly, thematically, in my work, like, all the time. In fact, One for the Blackbird, One for the Crow, which is my best-selling yeah. book to date, yeah. is about death. It is. It's about yeah. <laughs> death. Like, period. And, and so many people, it's so funny, so many readers have, like, told me like I'll go on social media and, and I and I I don't like to dictate what my books are about to people like they all have a meaning to me they're all about something to me but I don't like to tell people this is how you should interpret my work because it's meaningless like I can't force somebody to interpret it the way I want them to interpret it everyone brings their own perspectives and past and opinions to a piece of art and takes their own interpretation out of it. And that's fair. And I don't want to like fuck with that process by telling people this is what my book is about. But <laughs> sure. But so many people on social media will, will ask me, what is, what is the point of Blackbird? What's behind it? And I'll tell them, well, it's about um, finding the sacredness in death. And people will tell me, no, 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 no. It's not about death. It's about life. Like they will just contradict me on this. First of all, I wrote it. <laughs> I know what it's about. <laughs> 
you just asked if I answered your question. But also, it's, yeah, exactly. It's about life via death. It is about the fact that mm. nothing lives without something else dying. And it's about the fact that death begets life. Like that is the point mm. of that book. And that's right. so much of what I take from so much of your work and from John's work as well, where there are these like, you know, another favorite piece in my collection is Cathedral, which John painted. Um, and it's this incredible, like, it's also my sister's like favorite painting ever. She's obsessed with that painting, but, <laughs> but it's this incredible, beautiful, Man, yeah, it's this incredible, beautiful, um, still life of this little bird skeleton, like a fully articulated bird skeleton in a nest atop a glass bottle in front of a stained glass window, like this very simple composition, but it's rendered with this incredible delicacy and care and like reverence for the dead bird. And like... Mm. I'm getting all choked up just talking about it, right? <laughs> I, oh, that makes me so Oh, I know. You'll have to tell John, gonna, too. He'll love it. I will. I love that. I love that that is... But, like, that's that. what I want people to see in Blackbird, is that it's... Yeah. There is... Um, there's a space in her life for death, and there should yeah. be. Yeah. It's, a, it's interesting because it's, it's funny that you would get um, questions that would separate the two. You know, yeah, like, oh, no, it's about life. And I'm like, you can't I don't you cannot talk about one without the other. Like you cannot be a living person and not die. And you cannot talk about somebody who has passed without talking about their life. Like they are just yeah. they are the same thing. Right. And they are. That, yeah. And that that comes across like I think that is the the thread. Right. That um, why we have enjoyed your work so much and I oh, think why you. you have enjoyed our work so much, which I'm so excited for your, for your next <laughs> book. Um, but like, you know, to, and, and I think that probably comes, I don't know this for you, but like from a certain amount of experience and also observation, I mean, you, you are a very observant writer. Like you're, you are so descriptive. I remember thinking like, yeah. she's a painter. <laughs> I was like, I see you. Well, you like, can definitely tell I was at least raised by painters for sure. <laughs> I mean, you would, you know, it was really beautiful the way, because like, it's not always easy to carry description. I, at least like, I'll speak in, in the format that I know, like you can get caught in detail and lose the big picture. Right. And yeah. you, yeah. the, from the work that I know of yours, like you don't do that at all. It's something that's like, it's hard to hold on to that, you know, but I was like, man, that amount of like observation, which means like, at least how I can see it is that you would have that in your own life, you know, that observation that to know that to know that like that death is tied with life, you know, and, and truly feel it like you can say that. But then if you know it, it's a really different it's a different, um, there's a different empathy there that comes out, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad yeah. you took that in my work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, you can't, life and death are, are, you know, two sides of the same coin. Like, uh, you can't have light without shadow to speak mm -hmm. in the, in a visual metaphor for that. And you can't have a shadow without light. And there is the color in both the light and in the shadow, you know, like it's there, the local colors there. You can sense the environment around you, whether you're looking at the light or the dark. Yeah. 
Always. And it, it's, I think it's really interesting. I've been, I don't know what, what your beliefs are or anything like that. Um, and I don't know how much you want to share, but like, I have been really noticing, I've been kind of diving into that aspect of my life in my forties. And I think because it feels like, feels like I've been like riding in the ocean and bobbing along and having a ball. And then all of a sudden, like the wave has gone up and I can see the shore. And I'm like, oh shit, there's a shore up there <laughs> and I'm going to crash into it at some point. I have no idea when. Whereas in my 20s, it's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, that, that is the sound yeah. of 20s. Right? No offense totally. to any 20-year-olds, like you're exactly where you need to be, but, <laughs> you know, and I'm so grateful for those because, you know, yeah, anyway, <laughs> it all comes in its own time. But I've been thinking a lot about that of like how, um, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're, you start to... I don't know, I think I was about 35, 37 when I really started like noticing my own mortality on, on kind of a daily basis, mm -hmm. you know, of like whether it's your, you know, for me, some of it's like aging body, aging face, like how people react to that. But then also like and, and, and how I'm reacting to that, like what I'm able to do, but then also starting to be like, it's not so far away anymore. Like people I know are going to die, people, I mean, without getting too macabre about it, like it, it's, you start to kind of think, I think more, uh, more, uh, at least I thought a lot more about that all of a sudden, because I think I'm involved in that, <laughs> in that conversation, like that's about to happen. And you start to kind of notice that, but also it's interesting when you look at other cultures and how they treat death and, you know, and I, I, I can't speak for like the ins and outs of everything, obviously, but we fear death in Western culture. We really do. We are hysterically averse to death. We are. Like we try to deny that it's real. We are. It's so interesting yeah. too, because it's like, I don't know, that's just something I've been thinking a lot about with kind of some of the practices that have been going on. It's it, it, in holding death closely, like when you start to really think about your mortality, strangely enough, you become so much more plugged into your own life. Yes. You know, you yeah. right? Like you, I mean, they say, what is that? I don't know where this comes from. It's, it is a Native American, um, I just unfortunately don't know what tribe, uh, but it's a, you know, stay close to the people who have just witnessed death because they are, they are more in tune. They are, they are more sacred, literally, I think is what it says. And I think about that sometimes of like, yeah, it's, it, it, strangely, it's kind of true. Like all the people who I know when, when they, when they are around somebody who has just passed away, like their thoughts about life seem really unfoggy. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I was going to say very sharp and clear. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's, it, it's, they, they are able to focus on the important aspects yeah. of living like no one else can. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's like, it's like all the stuff you hear about mindfulness and present moment seems so much truer because all of a sudden there's like that, you know, it's the, it's seeing the shore. You know, see, <laughs> you see that shore yeah. coming and you're like, oh, the, the, the wave is getting closer. Like they, they just saw like, I think a more detailed version of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I like to surround myself so much with art that, that acknowledges death and that like makes it beautiful and, and that accepts, you know, its reality because I think that keeps me reminded every day. Like I'm walking around my house and I've got all these, you know, paintings of animal skulls and stuff all around me. And it's always just this little reminder visually that like, no one gets out of this alive. You better make every day count, like do something good every day, make the world a better place every day. Cause like 
you don't know when you're going to be a skull on the wall. Oh, man, (laughs) totally, totally. John has this thing sometimes. It's so awesome to be, you know, married to another creative person. But it's like sometimes I'll walk out and I've been like, you know, all day like I've been on the computer and I've been, you know, just doing the things that are like really wrapped up in whatever painting I'm doing, which I'm grateful for. But like, you know, sometimes I can think it's way more important than it is. Right. And and all of a sudden he'll just be like, you know, look up. And that's sort of like this thing we say to each other sometimes, like, look up. And it's so fascinating, like not necessarily for any kind of, you know, nobody, you don't have to read any spirituality in that. It's more just, there is a broadness. It's almost like when you, you know, we've been, I don't know if you probably can see the the stars really well from where you live, right? On San Juan Island, yeah, I just moved to a city, to Victoria, and um, the stars oh, are not right. as big here, but I, I, I'm still able to go back to the island now and then, and the stars are incredible there. Incredible. Doesn't it give you that thing? It, it, we've been, I mean, we can't see them as well as you would be able to see them just from all the, you know, from the Chattanooga glow, but yeah. I'll look at and notice that and I'm like, wow, it's so much broader than my little pea brain. <laughs> Thank God. There is something so wonderful about sort of just, I don't know, just feeling tiny. I love that feeling. I do too. And insignificant. I do too. I really (laughs) like it. I value it because like, yeah, we are tiny and insignificant. And also we can make these things that are so significant. Like we can create things Mm -hmm. that like carry these ideas out of our mind and hopefully share them into other minds and like maybe that changes the way someone lives their life or their perspective on life maybe it helps them in some way maybe it just maybe it just gives them a minute to like think about something a little bit differently and that just takes some of the mundanity out of the word the world briefly but like what a gift what a gift to be able to do that what a gift to know that you can do that to kind of loop this back to what we were talking about earlier um i'm so grateful that no one ever told me I should be more sensible than to be a writer professionally. (laughs) I'm so grateful because I I meet so many people who just like are afraid. They're so afraid to try it because they've heard it's crazy and stupid and that it will only bring you misery. And I'm like, my God, just, just try. What do you have to lose? Just like do it. Maybe you'll be bad at it. That's cool. Like it's okay to be bad at it. Yeah, I'm bad at all kinds of stuff and I still enjoy doing them. Like there's still value in the trying and in, and in striving for it. And like, maybe you'll be bad at it or maybe you'll be great at it. Maybe it will become your career. Maybe you'll become that person, you know, who writes a book that influences somebody else's life the way your book, your favorite book influenced yours. Or maybe you'll be the person who makes a painting that sticks with somebody forever, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's both, right? It's like, I'm insignificant and then I have this huge capability of having this footprint to other people's into people's lives that is so important. I mean, imagine like not having that. I I I know you understand this. There's I like being around things and people that remind me that the world is huge and that you know, that give me like honestly some strength to <laughs> to 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 stay to keep going and then that imagination that curiosity of like being able to see all that beauty and pain and suffering and you know stunning smallness and hugeness all that that's happening all the time like the, that's the stuff that I want to be around and i just yeah it's it's amazing it, it is something where you kind of want to well, you know what? We're doing that. Like sitting here on this podcast, it's like, 
it it is kind of saying that is like it's completely possible i mean it's funny because like as like a teacher it happens a lot of like i don't have talent which I've been like, I think the only part, the only part about talent that I actually believe is the willingness. Like you have either been quote unquote touched to be, or whatever you believe in that, like that you are going to be willing to go through the sacrifices, the hardship, the, the extreme enlightenment beauty that comes with all of that. Like you're willing to stick with it, but actual talent, like skill, I think it's garbage. (laughs) Like most of the people I know who were quote unquote, like naturally talented, never became artists. (laughs) I agree. I actually agree with you. And I say that as someone who will fully acknowledge that I've always been quote unquote, naturally talented as a writer. Like it's always been super fucking easy for me to put words together in a way that makes other people feel things. Like of all the things I've had to work at in my career, the actual writing part was not one of those things at all. Totally. I do I do still work at I I consciously like try to become a better, more skillful, more talented or whatever, you know, more expressive and more artistic writer all the time. Every book I make I I put more effort into that. But like, if you go back and read my first novel, it's good. It's well-written. Sure, totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good book. It's fine. But, like, it's not, it's not the natural skill that counts in creating this. Like, I know writers who have busted their ass mm-hmm. so fucking hard to learn how to write in a way that is um, accessible and interesting to readers. Like, they have worked so hard to build up the actual skill of prose. Mm -hmm. Um, I never worked for that. It just comes to me like I go smoke weed and it happens, whatever. It's like the most unfair, stupid thing in the world. (laughs) You can't tell the difference between my work and their work. Like who cares that they're not naturally talented like I am? That doesn't matter. It's not what gets you there. It It just means maybe you have to work a little bit harder, but who cares? Because you already have to work your ass off to do anything in a creative field anyway. So like... So what if you have to work a little harder on the technical aspects? But I guess that's it. That's the willingness, right? It's like the willingness, yeah. like you could, you could have this, um, this love of this ability to put prose together, like you say. But the thing is, is like, think about all the doubt, all those times of the, like the mind. Uh, I don't know if you have this. I'm like the, I call it the, the, the crying in the corner nights, you know? <laughs> where you want to quit and that's the thing where I'm like that's the if I believe in talent in that way and the reason that creative people like exist in that respect is just the like bullheaded kind of like keep going stamina that's with that more than anything else because I, I don't know that people when they first start can even tell that you know when they're when they're, um, like you said, like you have, a, I, I definitely had to like fight for a lot of stuff. I mean, not everything. Like I definitely always drew a lot, but there's things that did not come naturally to me at all. Like I'm not a natural draftsman whatsoever. And it's so interesting to kind of watch because I'm like, you know, the, I there were workarounds there. Like I'm not talented in that way. I'm talented in other ways, you know, but it's not the thing that kind of like made me an artist. It's almost like, I feel like when people say that it's, it's an excuse, you know, it's an excuse to not try and to sort of succumb to the fear of looking at when it could fail. The thing is, is it's going to fail. It's like inevitably going to fail sometimes. I think actually the failures are for me anyway, where I find the most value, especially for someone like me to where it's, it's always been, easier than I think it is for a lot of people to write the way I want to write. Like I just, 
I don't get in my own head about it. I've just like, from the time I was a tiny child, I was like, I'm a fucking great writer. I'm going to win a Pulitzer someday. Here I go. <laughs> you know, it, like I learn the most when, when it doesn't work. You know, when I have a book that flops, why did it flop? I got to figure it out. I got to dissect it. When I, when I, it doesn't come across the way I wanted it to. Like when I have those failures, that's when I get the most out of the experience. So like, even though it sucks to fail, sucks real bad. It's a blow to your ego, but also like if you can look beyond the pain of that like ego blow and say, okay, now what do I learn from this? Like, what do I take out of the failure? Like, how does this failure benefit me? That's where I have done my most growth as an artist. Like, I fuck up, it doesn't work, I try something and it flops miserably, and I go, well, okay, um, so next time I'm going to do it this other way. Totally. It's like sometimes the teacher shows up as a bad cop and sometimes it shows up as a good cop, right? (laughs) You know, it's like, I I mean, yeah, I I agree. There's been so many times where I'm like, I kind of got this and then don't got it. (laughs) And then sometimes I do. And then sometimes I do. And it's like, it's, it's, it's both all kind of constantly. But I guess that's the thing, right? Is to like remind people you can, like you, you can do this. It's just that commitment. It is. For me, that's a commitment's hard. Yeah. And it's the commitment of pushing through that time. So I'm sure you've probably seen this quote from Ira Glass about creativity. I can't rattle it off off the top of my head, but I'll give like the the Cliff's Notes version for listeners. (laughs) So Ira Glass, who is also a a podcaster um, and a a narrative artist, uh, he said years and years ago, like the, the difficult thing about a creative career is that you go through this period and it can be very long too, where your taste level does not match your skill level. Like you can, you're, you're, you're okay for your skill level and you're producing the work and you're putting in the practice, but like your taste level is so much farther ahead. You're like, oh my God, this sucks so bad. Like now I know how much I suck at this. Like, why am I doing this? And you know, the part you don't see from that perspective is that you have to keep pushing on the skills you have to keep working on the skills until they come up to match your elevated taste level and like you do get there eventually the more you practice with intention and the more you like look at those failures for lessons and dissect what went wrong so you can figure out how to make it go right the more you do that the faster you come up to match your taste level but it's hard to do like it's painful to take your your failures and and chop them apart like there's some dead frog in a science class you know and be like oh this thing I made really sucks <laughs> oh yeah it's it, I mean and I feel like I've I don't know about you like I I feel like I'm just kind of now like standing up on the paddleboard you know like I'm just starting to be able to find my balance a little bit of like oh what I'm saying is actually what I'm trying to say but for the longest yeah. time it was like whoops like stuff's coming out sideways and I didn't know <laughs> <laughs> and just technical issues, you know, just like, cause painting is so technical sometimes. And yeah. it's like, there's, there's this just world of like technicalities that you can get caught up in, but not, you know, you having the, um, the fluency with your tools takes a long time to do what you want. I mean, I, I truly feel like in the past five years, I am finally being like, that is what I wanted to say in paint. Well, good. But literally in the past five years. <laughs> 
and I've been doing this for 20, so. <laughs> it takes a long time. I, creativity, yeah. you know, lasts your lifetime, hopefully, if, if, if luck mm-hmm. is on your side. It takes, and it continues to develop. That's one of the things I love so much about writing is that I will never be as good at it as I want to be. Like, as highly as I think of myself, like I just admitted to, like a total <laughs> asshole. But like, that's true. That's who I really am. I, I am that asshole who's like, haha, I'm a good writer. <laughs> Like, as highly as I think of my own skills, um, I also know that I will never attain what I want to attain with it. Like, I'm going to keep pushing towards what I want, and I'm never going to reach it, and I love that. Like, it creates this, yeah, it creates this tension um, that keeps propelling me forward. Like, it keeps me going. Like, every time I start a new book, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know I'm going to fucking nail it. Let's go, you know? (laughs) (laughs) you just like you just have to keep working at it your whole life you never get there but you always get a little closer yeah yeah i mean it's the whole reason for doing it right if you were like if you reached it and you're like ta-da i arrived like i think i don't know there's like nothing in my life that i've kept that's like feels like that you know i'm like yeah i don't know like (laughs) different people in my life different you know it's like it's like there's a flatness to that that i'm just like i'm not interested like i want it to keep I want it to keep going. And that's the great thing about, for me, it's painting, for you, it's writing. It's like, I, it, it, there's a Degas quote that's like, um, painting gets a lot harder once you know how. <laughs> and I've always thought of, isn't that great? Like, I was like, yeah, it's so true. Like, yes, there is some hard stuff when you're a beginner, but it's so, oh man, like it's, it's got answers, you know, like, oh, yeah. you need technique, you need to do this. But like, once you know that part, everything gets a lot harder. And I think it, that's where it gets like, that's where you get the goo, right? Like the fun that's that's the stuff we want. That's why we got into it in the first place. But it's it's always it's a shapeshifter. I mean, it's gone <laughs> constantly. That's so true. You know. <laughs> okay. One final question. Okay. Who would win in a knife fight between Andrew Wyeth and Paul Gauguin? Oh my god. <laughs> well, good question. I love this. <laughs> so I want to say Andrew Wyeth because I just love him more. But I'm also like, well, but didn't Gauguin spread like diseases all over Paula? <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, like, he thought dirty. He was a crazy bastard. Yeah, so he probably would actually win. But I want Andrew Wyeth to be the. I want him to be kind of you know the winner with like you know all the browns and the snow and. (laughs) I want and I I'm gonna say Andrew Wyeth just because uh, Andrew Wyeth just kind of wins in everything in my book basically (laughs) knife fights painting whatever I do too. Me too. I love him. He's one of my favorite painters ever. That was also the one of the best questions I think I've ever been asked on a podcast. So thank you for winning that award, Libby. Of course you did, but still. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> storm kill my baby but it can't kill me lord and it can't kill me that old dust storm will kill my family but it can't kill me lord and it can't kill me that old landlord and it got my homestead but it can't get me lord and it can't get me 
That old dry spell killed my crop, boys, but it can't kill me, Lord, and it can't kill me. Tractor got my home, boys, but it can't get me, Lord, and it can't get me. That old tractor run my house down, but it can't get me down, and it can't get me. That old pawn shop got my furniture, but it can't get me, Lord, and it can't get me. That old highway's got my relatives, but it can't get me, Lord, and it can't get me. That old dust might kill my wheat, boys, but it can't kill me, Lord, and it can't kill me. I have weathered many a dust storm, but it can't get me, boys, and it can't kill me. That old dust storm, well, it blowed my barn down, but it can't blow me down, and it can't blow me down. That old wind might blow this world down, but it can't blow me down, it can't kill me. That old dust storm's killed my baby, but it can't kill me, Lord, and it can't kill me. I know when I was young, I was bothered by the thought of my own mortality. Like, the fact that I will die someday. I remember this kind of vague notion of feeling discomfort over that truth. Somewhere between when I was young and now, when I'm not, I lost that discomfort with the fact of my own death. It happened so gradually and subtly that I don't even really know uh, when the discomfort left me or what caused it to go. Like, I don't know whether it was some event in my life or something I read or something I saw. I don't know. It just departed. Now, I don't mean to imply that I don't love life. In fact, the more accepting I've become of death's inevitability, the more precious and vibrant and beautiful my life has become. I enjoy being alive so much. I mean, just like the pure biological sensations of life. I mean, colors! There are so many colors! Have you ever really looked at all the colors around you? Like, have you ever looked so deeply at something you think is green that you see all the places where it's not green? You can just fall endlessly into your own senses if you want to. Your neural networks are this magnificent playground and you can just walk around your neighborhood like smelling the air and noticing the differences in the smells. Have you ever done that? I love being alive. We should all take more time to just do nothing but be alive. Like really, we should play on the playground as often as we can manage. Enjoy it while it's here. Take as many turns on the merry-go-round as you can before they lock up the gates and kick you out for the night. Have you ever just sat and watched light in the tops of the trees? 
There are these moments of beauty everywhere, everywhere, in all things. You can find them if you look. Even in the painful things, you can find a strange sort of beauty there. In the things that hurt, in the things we lose, in the partings, we can see the reflection of the great unbreakable whole. If you can bear the pain long enough to look closely, it's there. Recently I was talking to a friend of mine, Sam, who's a really wonderful woman, I adore her. She was expressing some frustrations with her personal struggles with mental health, and I mean, who hasn't been there, right? Anyway, she mentioned how much she hates it when people ask her if she's happy. And I said, I think there's a lot of unintentional but still very real harm in this societal expectation that we should be happy. Like, happiness should be the expected default or like some kind of baseline normalcy rather than happiness being acknowledged as an emotion that comes and goes due to circumstances which are largely beyond our control. You know, like literally every other emotion a human could possibly experience. I think it does a lot more harm than good to uphold this idea that there's something wrong with us if we're not happy. Like, if you're not happy right now, uh, maybe it's for a damn good reason. And maybe you just need to feel whatever you're feeling because it's natural and right and a sensible response to all the shit that's going on in your life. Maybe it would be kind of fucked up if you felt happy right now. Maybe instead of happiness being the expected default, our baseline should just be... being. Maybe all we should be expecting of ourselves is that we inhabit this human body and enjoy whatever it brings us. Because really, it's kind of a big, improbable, insane fucking miracle that we're here at all experiencing anything. Even the ache and the agony are miraculous in their own right. And the different smells you can pick up as you walk through your neighborhood and the colors all around you and the sounds... Why can't that be enough? Why can't that be the baseline? Why can't our ideal state of being just be holding still and watching the light in the tops of the trees? I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're afraid, if you're crying out, if your heart is broken, lean closer. There's no light that exists without a shadow. And there's no shadow without a light. You never could feel a pain so great unless you'd also felt a joy so strong that it can't be described and can't even be known. The name of God is written on your heart. And every gray is rich with color.
That's all I got for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review since that helps tweak the algorithm so I can find more curious weirdos like yourself. Go immerse yourself in the stunning weirdness of Mia Bergeron's art. She has prints available on her website, miabergeron.com, and you can also explore her Instagram. If you'd like more stuff from the inside of my head, please check out my novel, The Prophet's Wife, because it's the best thing I've ever made and I really want it to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels, Just Sound Effects and Vintage Theater. Our musical interlude was Dust Can't Kill Me by Woody Guthrie in the public domain. Additional music included Precious Memories and Fresh Lift by Shane Ivers. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds.